Stories, fables, ghostly tales. My, my, my. What a horribly haunting horde we have here. You've come to join me, have you, for some more Halloween spooks? The last day of Spooktober, my slimy slugs. And you're spending it with little old me? Well, my specters of darkness and harrowing haunters of the night, I have three tales that are sure to delight. Your first tale is straight out of the woods, literally. It's in the title, sheesh. Enough said, really. I'm the tomb keeper, not the story wrecker, gosh. Your second tale really hits home, you know. Generation Freak, where the kids of these days are really just something else. And your final tale involves a ritual with a small radio, where a second pair of batteries would have been greatly desired. And I mean, really, cheaping out, not including two batteries extra in an artifact, I mean, come on. Listeners, enjoy your spooky tales, and I hope tonight is a scream. <laughs> Out in the woods. Hey, X. Just thought I'd share a couple of spooky stories from my childhood to get everyone all hyped for Halloween. When I was a child, it was just me and my mother. We lived in a property owned by my grandma, a three-story old farmhouse right at the fringe of the woods. It was far off the road, down a long, unlit gravel driveway. It felt very isolated at night, being so distant from any other houses, set in an area that hadn't been inhabited for 30 years before we started living in it. Quite often, I was a fairly rambunctious child, so while my mum went off to work, I would occasionally skip the morning bus to school and stay home alone all day. The big house had a habit of feeling incredibly lonely and sparse, so I spent most of my time playing in the forest expanse out back, some distance into the woods, far enough that I couldn't hear my mother when she called. There was a toppled pine tree, which had crashed into another. An even larger trunk on its way down was now frozen there, forming a long arc over the forest floor. I loved to climb up the jagged stump at the base of this fallen tree and then steady myself to a point just above the middle. I was never able to make it all the way to the top because it just got too steep for me to continue any further. And I had a bad habit of freaking out from how high up I was. One day, I was sitting in my usual spot on the fallen tree which was a good distance from the ground, just listening to the birds singing and simultaneously feeling the warmth of the sun on my neck, when I heard something strange from underneath that paralyzed me in shock. Hey, kid. I was gripped by a sudden strong surge of fear for a moment. The voice had come from directly underneath me. I strained to look down but couldn't see anything over the ledge. For a long time I just sat there in absolute silence, and I was at the point where I was almost soon to convince myself 
that I had imagined hearing a man's voice at all. I know you can hear me. His voice was much louder this time, as I yelled something out and scrambled up the log a bit higher. Trembling, nervously, I dug my fingernails into the bark and held tight for dear life. I sat there, trying to collect my nerves for God knows how long. Although I couldn't see it, the presence of the thing underneath me was still clear. The bird song was so much softer and more cautious this time, and when I listened closely, I swear I could hear the faintest echo of human breathing. Gathering all my courage, I vowed to prove to myself that it was all my imagination by leaning over the ledge as far as I possibly could without slipping right off. Digging hard into the bark behind me, I stretched out along my arms and peered over, getting a full view of the empty forest floor and undergrowth when suddenly, Come down here, or I will come up and grab you. It was so loud. It was as if it was being screamed right in my face. I released my grip on the tree in fright and plunged off the platform. I was saved only by grabbing a nearby branch, and for one awful second my bare legs dangled in the cool air. When I pulled myself up, I ran at full speed to the top of the collapsed pine to the point I had never reached before. I sat there, just below the rustling canopy, pissing myself and staring at the distant base where the splintered wood rose, fully expecting at any moment to see someone crawling rapidly up the pine towards me. Instead, all I heard was the wind whistling in the leaves above me and below me, and occasionally snippets of birdsong. It was about two hours before my mother got home and found me, after much worried searching, trembling and crying at the top of the fallen tree. Although this incident spooked me and my mother, in time I somehow recovered, exhibiting that naive hard skin of a child although I never went as far into the forest as I used to, and never again ever approached that fallen tree. Once, when I was twelve, I had the chore of taking firewood from the shed out back, just at the edge of the woods, and to bring it back inside the house. It was a tiresome job, and I always chose to do it at dusk when the air was brimming with mosquitoes and a swampy fog that usually coated the lawn. By the time I had made my last round, I would sprint back to the house, spooked. One of my least favourite things about this job was that the shed was full of barn owls. If you have ever seen a barn owl's face staring at you from a dark roof corner, then you will know how uncomfortable that shed made me. One of these nights, it got mistier than it had ever been before. A thick silver fog covered everything and limited my line of sight to a short sphere around me. Even though the shed wasn't far from the house, I found myself feeling disorientated, and more than once I walked in the wrong direction, both times for some reason walking straight into the woods. By the time I'd reached my last load, it was too foggy to see the street. My eyes stung in the moisture, and it made my vision blur. Lurching forward, I managed to walk head first into a tree, doubling over and dropping all of the wood I was bundling onto my feet with a hard crunch. As I went to pick them up with my foot throbbing pretty hard, I realized that the ground was too misty for me to see my own needs. I decided to head to the house, since we had more than enough wood for one night. However, it was going to be pretty dark and I couldn't make out any signifiers of which direction I was heading in. 
even though I cautiously walked for several feet in all directions, trying to figure out my position in the mists. I still couldn't figure out any point of identification. I couldn't even locate the fence or the gate, and the more I walked, the more I seemed to stumble into trees, pine needles, and mud crunching under my feet instead of dew-covered lawn. After a while, I finally realized that I couldn't even find the shed anymore. Cursing myself for being so dumb, while trying to ignore my thumping heart and sense that something else was at play, I became aware that I was lost somewhere in the fringe of the forest. Screaming out for my mother at the loudest possible volume was only met with a resounding silence from the depths of the mist all around me where I stood, affirming that I had wandered too far from the house to be heard. As a deep panic started to settle on me, I noticed a glimpse of something pink moving against a nearby pine trunk. Coming closer, I saw that it was a ripped out square of pink paper. On it, there was an arrow pointing left. Looks vaguely like something my mum might make, I rationalised, trying to keep me from getting lost. So foolishly, I followed the direction set by that green arrow, shivering in the increasing cold. I kept walking for about five to ten minutes before needing to stop to take a breath. My heart was pounding so fast, it was beginning to hurt. And I was sitting down. However, I spied what appeared to be another note fluttering on a nearby trunk. I noticed that this one was embedded with a long nail. It bore another arrow, this one pointing up and a small, sloppily written note that said, This way. Despite my increasing panic, I convinced myself that these notes were my only shot at getting back before nightfall. I was desperate to get the hell out and my brow was cold with sweat, so I followed the green arrow to a point where I could just dimly make out another spot of pink up an incline of collapsed stumps and leaf litter. At this point it was getting pretty dark, and I had to strain both my eyes just to see a few meters ahead of me. Following the green arrows, feeling less and less sure of where I was, I stumbled through the woods, groping out in the mist to feel for trees, although I was terrified of something unseen, grabbing my arm. I came across the third green note, which had another arrow pointing up again. This one led to an increasingly steep slope that I didn't recognize being anywhere near my house, and with a poorly drawn smiley face right above it. At this stage, I became too freaked out to cope and started to cry there a little. As I slumped against the pine stump, the possibility that I would be out in these woods all night was beginning to sink in, like a syringe being driven into the veins within my arm. I caught a glimpse of another pink square in the near distance. Squinting hard, unnerved by these notes, all of which looked fresh and without sign of decay, despite the previous week's non-stop rain, I read it from afar. What I read made my blood turn cold. I stood to my knees, dead silently, wobbling on them in fear. My ears were sensitive to any tiny prickle of noise in the mist. For a long time I stood there, in the rolling fog, reading and rereading that horrible note over and over again, before a snapping stick somewhere behind me caused me to sprint blindly, twigs snapping at my ankles and cutting up my face as I ran. Written on the note, in big green letters was my name. It felt like I was running for hours. All the while, the rain and mist lapped at the back of my neck, 
like the decaying breath of someone running right behind me. Somehow, I made it back to my house. All the lights were off, and I struggled to find the keys for a moment. When I found them, I bolted indoors and quickly crawled into bed where I remained, unsleeping till morning. Mum just thought I'd come inside and gone to bed, and hadn't thought to leave the lights on. It was a miracle, aka some freakish coincidence, that I even found that house at all. The final incident at that damn house was witnessed only by my mother. Up until then, she had never experienced any of the strange things as I had. Although we mutually shared the peculiar oppressive quality that the house's interior had on us, and its placement in the dreary imposing woods. Although I was obviously never a popular kid, by living way out in the country in the opposite direction from everyone else at my school, I did make some tight friends in my first year of high school. One of these friends, Amanda was her name, invited me over one night and I accepted. My mother drove me out to the place which was about three miles away, then drove back home. The night went well. We watched a horror movie, suitably, devoured some pizza and probably smoked a little pot. My mother went home alone where she intended to get some writing done. She worked for a magazine at that point. It was about midnight when I received an off-putting text from MUM in all caps. Is this a prank I need to know immediately? Thinking it was some kind of joke, I texted back, Calm yourself. Is what a prank? Almost immediately the response, Are you at the house? Of course, I responded, no, though I was thoroughly weirded out. I didn't receive another message until around 3am, when she told me to go to my grandma's in the morning and to not, by any means, dare go home. I remember those bleak torrents of rain the day I went to my grandmother's, and how terribly soaked I was when I finally got there. It was nearly two towns away. I had to fight the temptation to go home and drop off my bags. But mum's disturbing message from last night were enough of a warning not to do so. When I arrived, mum and grandma were having lunch. At first, my mother seemed to be in some sort of a composed state. But when I got a better look at her, I noticed that all of the colour had drained from her face and she was slightly trembling. At one point, she even sent a small glass crashing to the floor after flinching at the cat brushing around her ankles. It wasn't until later that night when my grandma was sound asleep, that she told me what happened. She went further as to forbid me from telling old grandma out of fear that it would horrify her superstitious soul too much. This was what happened the night when I was at Amanda's, as she described in lurid detail. My mother was sitting on the first story in the living room, where she sat on the couch by the fire. Curtains opened to the view of the sunset on the canopy, going over her latest draft. At first, it was so faint that she barely noticed it. But after a while, my mother became aware of and vaguely irritated by tiny thumping noises near her head at the window. When she went over to investigate, she saw fat brown moths of a kind we often get at that place buzzing madly into the glass. Reasoning that this was the cause of the sound, she returned to her work, however, feeling rattled in some way. It was when the noises started to get sharper and louder that she paid more attention and saw that rocks were being thrown at the window 
from the total blackness of the forest's edge. She saw them appear from the shadows of the bush and then fall in an arc and bounce off the window. Looking carefully, she could see small cracks from where some heavy ones had hit right beside where her head had been moments before. Temporarily captivated, she tried to peer into the darkness enough to make out where the rocks were being thrown from. Then, with a startled shock, she jumped back from the window as she saw me standing half behind the tree right near the window, grinning wide and staring at her. My one visible eye stretched wide open, showing all the white. She barely stifled a scream, seeing her own daughter standing there, just staring and smiling. Not only did the figure not move nor blink, it was standing by one of the nearest pines, far from where the rocks were shooting out of the bush. As they continued to do so, in a loud downpour, my face unceasingly continued to press out at her, smiling. Thinking this was all some kind of sick prank, hence the later text, my mother shouted my name at the top of her lungs, frightened to the core. However, instead of responding, the mouth of the thing that looked like me behind the tree just started moving, as if it were mouthing silent words really fast. Suddenly, it turned its head to the side and seemed to be talking to someone else behind the tree, my mum said, who couldn't be seen. But she could see a formless black shape hanging against the other side of the tree. The girl that looked like me kept staring at my mother and doing the silent speed-talking thing, then turning and whispering to the thing next to her. Then she would turn back and start up again. Then, breaking the monotonous spell, she suddenly pointed straight at my mother and started laughing. My mother screamed and fled to my bedroom on the second story, the only room with a working lock, where she shut herself in and sat at the far end of the bed as the rocks began to pitter-patter against the window downstairs, dry-heaving and weeping in fear. In my room, my mother said she did not feel safe. There was an awful smell and a weird humming noise in the walls, as she described. She tried to pray for a time before giving up and just listening to the rocks pelt the walls and windows somewhere. In the kitchen, though, she caught the distinct vibrant sound of a window actually smashing and the weird continuous humming. Listening more carefully, she could identify it as the softest hint of a mumbling voice. In absolute horror, she recognized the voice and then, virtually too afraid to look, she tilted her head up to the closet door where an awful white face could be seen staring right at her. Mouth contorting and gaping in what sounded like highly sped up whispering. The closet door was only a meter from my mother. It started to open slowly. In an unimaginable explosion of terror, she immediately bolted to the door, only to fumble with the lock as bigger and bigger rocks came crashing through the window, which burst apart in a spray of glass shards, before finally getting out, running out of the house, completely keeping her eyes off the woods, getting into her car and driving off. She said that as she glanced back, right at the end of the prolonged drive, she saw two unmistakable human forms standing 
at my broken bedroom window, watching as her car got further and further away from our house. This would be their final farewell, as my mother never stepped foot in that place again. As my mother told this story, she broke down into tears. I didn't doubt her, and I still don't. I honestly and fully believe that she experienced what she says she did. It was also quite clear that we were done living in that house for once and for all. I only went back once with my dad, who I see very rarely now. He came from another state to help us move. Mum had already found a place in town and moved in. My dad and I just loaded up his truck with all that was left inside there. It was a silent, sunny morning when we removed all the stuff and emptied the place. I wish I could say there was some closure, some final spooking to Capitol off, but there wasn't. It was just a relief to be out of there. There are, however, only two things left worth mentioning. One, when we checked the house for any signs of intruders, we found that several windows, including one in my bedroom and the kitchen, had been smashed and rocks were lying on the floor. Two, Dad went out into the trees for a bit to take a leak. When he came back, he asked how long we'd had the swing set for. Needless to say, we'd never had a swing set, so I was fairly unsettled to discover that in the week since we'd been gone, someone had assembled a rope swing set from one of the highest branches of the old pine over the ridge, against which was the fallen log I'd stopped climbing many years ago. It was obviously new rope, and a nicely polished, sanded down wooden seat at the base. Dad wanted to keep my mind from recent events, he doubted the affair and thought my mother was mentally unstable, said that a neighbour probably set it up, not realising it was on our property. Of course he knew as well as I did that we had literally no neighbours for at least a mile in any direction. There were no houses in all that space, and never in my time living there did I ever see any other signs of human habitation. But I let it all go, and was pleased enough just to say good riddance to that horrible place as we drove off for good. For the most part, I found it best to try and forget what happened at that place. Sometimes I just can't help but ponder it, though. It's been long enough that I no longer feel scared talking about it, but for a long while I couldn't. Seeing as it's Halloween, what better time to share, huh? My grandma just recently sold the house to a new family, that being a couple and their little son. Shortly after we moved out, despite my mother's desperate insistence that it be left empty, now she refuses to talk about what happened altogether. I'm less anxious about it, although sometimes I can't help but let my imagination get the better of me. All I can do is think of that old house, the fallen down tree, the new occupants, and the swing out back, gently spinning in the breeze as that little boy toddles obliviously towards it. And so ends Out in the Woods. Generation Freak Pardon my French, but I can't fucking stand today's kids. You know what I mean, right? It's not like it was back in the day. Everything's gone wrong. As far as I can tell, it all started when the aliens killed Kennedy. They went and dropped a crystal superstructure on Dallas and that was that. I was in the third grade back then. It was all any of my school friends seemed to talk about. It was like nothing that had ever happened before. 
Then, all at once, we changed. An entire generation of children were altered. Our senses were different. Our minds were ever so slightly changed. We were not what our parents were. We were new. Still, we were kids. We were okay. We made sense even after all that. I remember when I was 13 and first began feeling the minds of the older folks around me. I could taste the shape of their thoughts. I could sense their motivations and their fears. Mostly, I would just use it to work out the answers of pop quizzes or what I was getting for Christmas. I knew a few others of my generation could do the same trick, but they weren't very open about those things back then. Children were to be seen and not heard. I was 14 when I first saw another person's memories. It was my father's. I was sitting at the dinner table and I looked over at him for just a second. He was wiping mashed potatoes and chicken gravy off his cheek with a wadded up paper towel. I looked at him and he looked at me and then, without any effort on my part, I was inside his mind. I was him and we were in his car in a parking lot somewhere. I remember there was a stray dog staring at us, or him, from behind a rusty old dumpster. It's funny the things that get stuck in your head. I remember this wonderful feeling like pure ecstasy. I looked down with his eyes and there was a man in his lap with his mouth around my father's penis. That's so good, baby. I heard my father say in half moan. He was a World War II veteran who always carried a gun and thought Elvis was a bit too new age. This was not the man I knew. I felt his body tense up. Quickly, I shuddered out of his mind before the inevitable conclusion. I was still sitting at the table, looking at him, and he was looking at me. And then he sneezed, and I excused myself and went to take a shower. I still don't know if he knew what I saw. We never talked about it. Mostly, I put the whole thing out of my mind, but when he died, that man was at his wake. He said his name was Ed, and that they were buddies from college. I shook his hand and then went and sat next to my grieving mother. That was all so long ago now, it hardly matters at all. It probably sounds funny to folks these days, caring if your father was gay. We live in such different times. I remember when I was about 19, the indigo children started being born. It was all over the news. They were more like us, but more snake-like in appearance with forked tongues and vibrant, multicolored, scaly skin. It wasn't long after that they started being born with tails and stingers and fangs. I was a modern enough guy. I didn't hate them. I wasn't afraid. It was just a bit queer, you know? Hanging out with friends who had kids got really uncomfortable. Eventually, I made a point of avoiding those friends. Sooner or later, they became strangers. These days, the children aren't even children anymore. They're floating, twisted monstrosities. They leak their yellow sludge from curled and scaly tentacles. Their eyes are black and soulless. I've heard it said they don't even have blood in the same way we do. It's made of different stuff. How can they be our future? Still, I've always been one to leave well enough alone. I worked and saved and worked and saved my whole life. I retired. I bought a decent house in a decent neighborhood and lived a simple life full of simple pleasures. My one companion was a tuxedo cat 
named Connery. Connery was a good boy. He liked eating popcorn and sitting on my shoulder while I read. When I'd smoke, he'd swipe at the air with his little paws. He used to sleep directly in front of the TV. When I would try to move him, he'd go limp and play dead. It really was adorable. I loved that cat more than I'd ever loved my ex-wife or anyone else for that matter. It was July 16th that he ran away. I was grabbing some groceries that had been delivered to my porch and he slipped out of the door and between my legs and before I knew it, he was gone. I chased after him but that came to nothing. Three days later, on the 19th, I heard a scratching at my door and this pain yowling. I opened the door to a disturbing sight. Connery was covered in slashes and bites. There was so much blood in his fur and streaked across my porch where he just barely managed to drag himself to the door. I held him and tried to provide some comfort. I hoped that helped him feel less scared. He died in my arms within a couple of minutes. As I examined his body after the fact, it was clear what had happened. His flesh had been pierced with sharp tentacles, like beaks and razor-sharp fangs. There was yellow slime mixed in with the blood. Damn kids! I cursed. The next day, I wrapped Connery in a clean white sheet and buried him between two large hydrangea bushes in my backyard. The days were lonely after that. The house was so quiet. Mostly I slept and smoked. I'd go for two or three days without brushing my teeth or changing my clothes. I can't say for sure when I had the idea. It was impossible to put it aside once it became clear to me. I bought six large bags of candy for less than 15 bucks. The poison was significantly more expensive. It was intended for exterminating rodents, but I figured it would do the trick. I am not a bad or cruel man, but someone had to take a stand. Halloween came. Actually, it was the week before when Trick or Treat took place in my neighborhood. That day, I hollowed out a big old pumpkin so I could bake the seeds and pour butter all over them like my dad always used to do before he had his second heart sack. Afterwards, I took the candy I'd bought and piece by piece unwrapped it. The poison was a chalky white powder, not dissimilar in its texture to very fine sand. I sprinkled just a little bit on each piece, then placed the pieces in little baggies with Halloween-themed stickers. The little bats and pumpkins and things were kind of cute, and they provided a plausible enough reason for the candy to be unwrapped. I filled the hollowed-out pumpkin with the baggies of candy and stickers and placed it out in my yard with a sign that read in big red letters, TAKE PLENTY. Then I poured myself some gin and Sprite, took a seat on my living room window, and waited. Darkness came soon enough. Then the monsters came out dressed as astronauts and cowboys and Disney princesses. I watched as they went from house to house. Their less freakish but still grossly mutated parents followed behind them with tired, dead eyes. The children were so strange to look at. I mean, that wasn't news to me, but I'd never just sat and watched them before. They were whirling balls of limbs, beaks, teeth, and stingers like machines made of flesh and bone, solely existing to consume and destroy. Their laughter was similar to nails on a chalkboard. Even the air around them seemed to be made revolting and impure by their presence. The blades of grass and flowers they touched wilted and died. These kids truly were poison to the world. 
Child after child floated on up and took their candy. They squealed with what must have been glee, but was as unsettling and hair-raising as any wolf's howl. A kid dressed in a vampire cape, wearing a fake plastic ruby around the closest thing it had to a neck, approached cautiously. It was a fat kid with massive clear and veiny sacks of fat hanging like revolting Christmas tree ornaments from its tentacles. It came up to the pumpkin, grabbed a bag with a chocolate bar inside, then proceeded to open the bag. The little bastard flung the candy and stickers into its disgusting mouth and ripped them apart with the efficiency of a blender. I'll admit I let out a small chuckle. Suddenly, it went limp, convulsed twice, and then collapsed to the ground dead. The other children and their parents all stared silently at the corpse for just a moment before it burst like a squeezed zit spraying brown, green, and dark red pus all over my well-kept yard. I expected fear. I expected some kind of awful, terrified reaction. I could not have predicted what actually happened. The surrounding children shriek in delight and swarm the remains of their dearly departed comrade. All at once, they gorged themselves on the fluid and flesh of the dead. They forgot about their candy. This is what they really craved. Then, as if a miracle, the cannibal freak children began to collapse and die themselves. Their parents moaned and tutted in annoyance at their children's gory fate. Soon my yard was completely covered in bubbling mush with bits of tentacle and bone coating the front of my house. It was overwhelmingly beautiful despite giving off a smell of sour milk and sweaty asshole. The parents left. A few other children came by and floated over the mess to grab their candy before quickly moving on to another house. I smiled and laughed and cried. This was so wonderful and so freeing. Still, it had hardly been any more than a mild distraction from the nightmare which was the E.T. generation come to replace us. I don't think I had planned to do what I'm doing now. Maybe it was always in the back of my mind. About an hour ago, I went out to my messy yard and took a candy bar from inside the hollowed out pumpkin. It was sticky with meat juices. I wiped it off and carried it out to my backyard, along with a glass of cheap white wine from a box. I am finishing the wine now. It's not bad, not great, but not bad. The candy bar is melting in my hand. I can just barely see the poisonous powder sticking to the chocolate. I'm sitting in the grass by Connery's grave. I pet the ground and pretend he can sense that I'm there. Maybe <laughs> he can. I suppose cats have souls if any of us do. Now it's time to leave this damn mess. I bite into the chocolate. It's so sweet. It tastes like a simpler time. And so ends Generation Freak, written by Gomez Capulet. A Small Radio During October 30th, at 11.59 at night, go outside. Draw an oval in the dirt with your hands. If you use any tools, it will not work. Place your phone on vibrate and set it in the middle of the shape. You must keep focus on the phone. 
Because if you look away, there's a good chance it might vanish. Did I not mention something wants to stop you? You can't see it. You can't touch it. It can see you, but not touch you. Try not to take much note of that. At 12.15, you should receive a call from a private number. Don't answer. No one knows what happens, but there's a good chance you will die. Again, take no note of that. After a while, you should receive a text from the same number. It's safe to read. It will disclose a number which is safe to call. Call it and make sure to keep it on speaker. For remember, you can't break focus. If you call it, some man with a deep, raspy voice will answer. It will be silent for a minute or two. Then he will ask you for your address. Tell him, it's okay, you need to. He will agree to send you a package two nights later at 11.59. They will, as soon as the clock strikes 11.59. They will appear without warning, except a knock on the door. If you open the door, you will find a package. It is sealed tight in a blank cardboard box. If you open it, you will find a small radio. Put in the batteries that come with it. They will last you a year. At 12.15, tune the radio to AM 11.1. The man will speak in a deep mumble, untranslatable. You will feel a slight headache. Don't stop listening. He will get louder, and your headache will grow more painful as he progresses. Don't stop listening. At 12.25, exactly, he will stop. A joyful tune will play. Your headache is gone. As long as the radio plays, somewhere you hold it dearest, such as your house or car, you will gain endless amounts of good luck. It doesn't matter if you can hear it or not. You will win at every sport you play. You will pass every test you take. You will win every bet you make. You are undefeatable. But one day, you will hear a loud pop. Start running. The batteries died. The thing can now see and touch you. It will stop you now. And all you can do is keep running. It will get you eventually. In time. So, my ghouls and gourds, I hope your Halloween was just pumpkin-y. And I know that for some of you horrors of the dark and delvers of the Sowween, this is your favourite time of year. And rightfully so, my creepies. For what other time of the year can you celebrate old B-grade films, terrible scary tales, and revel in the dead and decomposing Why? It almost makes me feel alive. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for joining me this Halloween. And I hope you enjoyed the Tomb Keeper, as I call him, the knockoff version. We'll hope you back for next Halloween as well, for sure. I wanted to thank you all for your lovely Halloween presence and letting me reside comfortably in your ears for a time. 
I'd like to thank the superstars now that support the show. Firstly, the amazing Matto Star that grabs this podcast by the shorts and hurtles the show and me into an Olympic gold tier of space. Wherever that may be, it's far. Where I can really buy and source anything that this podcast desires. Thank you immensely, mate, for supporting me in the way that you do. It's such a godsend. And I've received your lovely, lovely email, and I'll be responding this weekend to your lovely self. Cheers, you legend. Never forget how awesome you are. You are one special, special chaparino, Matto Star. And an honorable thank you to Maya, the Queen of Cats, and may their claws be sharpening on those pumpkins tonight. And of course, my Lezer Bauer, the man of ultimate power. Thank you, mate, for constant support. Where would this show be without you, mate? I'll say it. Nowhere near in audio quality. Nowhere near in special effects or mastering, mate. Thank you immensely, buddy. And I do know that Halloween is one of, if not your absolute favorite event of the year for you. So I hope it's going fantastically, mate. And just like Matto Star, you are a legend. And don't you forget it. Big hugs and high fives, buddy. And to my epic El Grey Enforcers, I hope your Halloween Spooktober was full of pumpkin spice lattes or whatever you like that has something pumpkin-y about it. I want to thank Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaele, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Zostra, and Paige Kramer. May your pumpkins be overflowing with candy and your lawns covered in spiderwebs and candy. I'll be returning to the standard tales next week, but we'll always have an episode dedicated to horror on rotation. And now, to end our spooktober, take it away, knock off Tombkeeper. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail, but remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling, like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet. <laughs> Toodaloo! So, do you think the kiddies enjoyed the show? Yeah, I think so. You know I'm a big fan of yours, right? Really? You've seen my work? Mate, who hasn't? Raising 10,000 skeletons to topple three empires, pulling out their hearts and spreading plagues and disease. No, 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 I mean the show. Oh, yes, that old chestnut. Well, let's discuss this over some boiling bubbles and deviled eggs. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I hope your spooktober was awesome. And see you next week. Catch ya.